Hello, this is Curtis Edwards, Vice President of Investor Relations at Hudson Investing. Are you ready to start building your multifamily portfolio? Kent and I are excited to announce our newest deal in Spartanburg, South Carolina. This 157-unit property offers a unique chance to acquire a B-class value-add property for just $120,000 per door. This is well below replacement costs. De-risking the deal even further is a favorable loan assumption with over six years remaining at 3.73% fixed. With 50 economic development projects underway and 70,000 jobs within a 20-minute drive, the South Carolina upstate region is primed for above-average job, population, and rent growth. Don't miss out on this exclusive deal. Find the link in the description notes to learn how you can invest. No one's perfect. We're all going to make mistakes. How do we address the mistakes and how do we move on and how do we avoid those mistakes in the future? Do we make mistakes? Absolutely. We're not going to all have the perfect set of information to make decisions, but we have to make the best decision based upon the information that we have. And we just have to make sure that we get the best information that we can in order to make the most educated decision. Welcome to Right Around Real Estate, the show about how to passively invest like a pro. On each episode, I interview real estate experts who give their top investing advice, strategies, and tools, and I break down their insights into practical steps to avoid the pitfalls and make better investments. I want to help you passively invest like a pro. This is Ritter on Real Estate, and I'm your host, Kent Ritter. Hello, fellow investors. Welcome to another episode of Ritter on Real Estate. I'm your host, Kent Ritter, and we're here to teach you how to passively invest like a pro. Today on the show, we've got Scott Crone. Scott's a Chicago native whose career in architecture began in 1991 by pursuing his master's in architecture from the Illinois Institute of Technology. In 2012, Scott founded the Coda Management Group, which is a firm that specializes in managing real estate assets. And Coda manages a wide variety of real estate, including single and multifamily homes, retail, commercial warehouse and self-storage, and multi-use flex athletic spaces. Currently, his platform has investments in over $55 million worth of real estate. Additionally, Scott has authored a book called High Performance Homes, Navigating the Green Road to Your Dream Home. It's a book for homeowners seeking to incorporate green technology into their home. And I know I know Scott has done a lot even outside of his bio, so, so we'll unpack all that today. But to start off, Scott, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Ken. I look forward to this time. Yeah, absolutely. So... Before we get into the question and answer, I'd love to just give everybody a sense of a little bit more who you are. So let's start there. Tell us, you know, who you are and how you got to where you are today. Well, I think uh, you, you summed up the beginning part of it. You know, I'm from Chicago. I grew up here and um, I got into architecture when um, my senior year of college, when uh, my parents showed up on parents weekend and said, hey, what do you want to do next year? And I thought I was going to work for the family business. And they gave me the shocking news that the family business was going to be sold. So that put a, an end to that. I was going to be, I was fourth generation in the family business. And um, so, but also gave me a lot of liberty to just, just say, wow, my, you know, here's my path on life and now it's changing. So it gave me the opportunity to go into, um, to get my master's in architecture. And it was during that time, you know, during, you know, I had a week off between graduating and starting my graduate program. And that first summer was like an intensive program that we did to, to ensure that we were really committed to this three and a half year journey. 
And I realized at that time that um, being the developer was the key to um, controlling the architecture and the construction. And uh, so that's where I began focusing most of my career and during my graduate work was understanding the roles of the developer, the architect and the builder. And so that, the next year I was the TA for a gentleman who owned a company that actually did multifamily developments. And so my master's thesis was a 400 unit, $100 million in revenue project that um, he selected mine out of the class and I was working for it during then class with him. And then when I was his TA and then outside of class, I was also working in his office. So I worked for him for six years um, while in school and once I graduated. And so I ran that project plus a bunch of other multifamily, either apartments or condominium projects for him. And then eventually started my own company, Coded Design Build in 1998. And we were doing multifamily, mixed use, single family, uh, churches, those sorts of things. And then in, in um, 13, we started uh, Coda Management Group just to specifically focus on commercial investments and beginning of our sort our self storage career. And we subsequently sold off our multifamily and have been focusing our investments on self storage during that time. And then just this spring, we launched our own self storage brand, One Stop Self Storage. And so now all of our facilities are under that banner. Gotcha. Wow, I mean that that's a really unique story in that. You know, a lot of people get into um, kind of start this path, you know, I, I guess much, much less formally, you know, they're, they're trying to figure out a place to, you know, maybe put some capital or, or, or something and come up, but you actually came up through, you know, a, a very formal process and, you know, through your, through actually a, like going through university and going through education, but you had the benefit of being able to get some real practical experience alongside that. So that sounds like an amazing opportunity to actually work on a development as you're finishing up your education. It was, uh, I felt incredibly beneficial. Um, you know, when you approach undergraduate and we had undergraduates in the program, um, who were, you know, taking similar courses as we were, because I, I had to complete some of the undergraduate requirements during my master's because my undergraduate work was in history. So I, I had to combine, you know, basically, you know, five years of education and into three and a half. And so, um, the way in which they approached it versus how we were approaching it as a, as a, I, I mean, I approached my graduate work as my career versus college. I approached as college, like most college kids. Right. <laughs> and so, um, knowing that I was working on something that was actually going to get built provided me with a lot greater motivation and, you know, and sense of purpose. And then when I was working on it in the office, I was running all the financial modeling. And so I got to see the repercussions of what we were doing on the design board and how it was directly impacting the overall net line and, you know, how we were structuring the entire deal. And so it, it set me up perfectly for my career. I couldn't, I couldn't have asked for a better situation. Yeah, that, that's incredible. So uh, as we were talking, you, you outlined something for me, the, your practical guide to, to passive investing. And I, I think that fits so well into the show and, and what our listeners are looking for. So I'd love to unpack that with you and, and go through the steps and, and just talk through it. Well, when we were first doing the multifamily developments, you know, it, it was sort of like um, the field of dreams, build it and they will come. You know, it was we didn't have like a, a good understanding of what the overall marketplace was. There were some, you know, demographic studies and, and things along those lines. But basically, you know, this was in the in the early 90s and late 90s. Um, you know, the economy was 
began to boom. We were in the midst of a recession when I first began, but then things began to take off. And so if you built it, people would just fill it. Um, one of the things I've really learned and appreciated comparatively when we're doing self-storage is that it is much of a retail business as it is a real estate business. And therefore, it is a very predictable model. So one of the things that we always stress is really understanding the marketplace. So the first practical guide for us is, you know, what is the demand and what is the supply and is there unmet need? And so we're always evaluating that. And I think that's an important thing to do is to understand what is the market that you're going into. And you can do this. It's more difficult, but it can be done in, in the different um, segments of real estate. But for us in self-storage, it is a much more predictable model. And that's one of the things that we like about it comparatively. And then the second part of it is once we've identified the market and we, we understand, I mean, our market is no more than a five mile radius. So we're, we're focusing on between a one, three and five mile radius. That's how specific our market is. Um, and then once we do that, then it's how do we beat our competition? And the best way that we can beat our competition is making sure that our total end price is below theirs. So if we have to cut prices, it won't kill us. And so we're always trying to come in around 65% compared to what our competition is doing. And for us, that's buying existing buildings below replacement cost and then converting them. So, you know, if I can come in and buy a building for anywhere from 11 to $15 a square foot, I, I can't build the building for that. So that, that inherently gives me a competitive advantage compared to my competition. And then the next thing is the creativity within the capital stack. How do we structure the capital stack to make sure that we're creating the greatest amount of returns with the lowest amount of risk for our investors? And I think a lot of investors overlook the capital stack and the sources and uses when they're evaluating it, because we'll get a lot of people <clears throat> that will tell us like, well, I'm, I'm looking at this multifamily deal and they're giving us 80% of the split. And, and I said, okay, well, that, that's, that's pretty incredible that you're getting 80% of the split. What's your cash on cash? What's your, your IRR and what's your rate of return? They're like 8%. I'm like, well, they're having to give you 80% in order to get that IRR up to 8% which inherently tells me there's a lot of risk because if they have to give away so much of the deal in order to get a market you know, driven rate, then there's obviously a lot more risk because of the competition, which is what we began looking at as seeing within that market cycle, <clears throat> why we began selling off our multifamily because, and I, I perhaps I didn't time it properly, but I, I sold all of ours in uh, 18 because I thought we were at the peak and here we are in 21 and, you know, I don't think I would have wanted to have multifamily during this, you know, um, pandemic, especially with, um, you know, uh, the moratorium on rent collection and those sorts of things. I mean, here in Chicago, you know, I would have been killed um, if, you know, we weren't able to collect rents. I mean, just the property taxes alone would kill us. <clears throat> so, um, you know, I'm thankful that we were, we got out when we did, but perhaps it was a year or two early, but I'd rather be a year or two early than a year or two late. Yeah. I mean, it, it's definitely a tale of, of markets when it, when it comes to COVID, right? I mean, Chicago is a very different environment. I mean, any of those big cities, Chicago or the coastal cities are a very different market than uh, some of the more rural or, rural or suburban areas, right? I mean, we didn't see hardly any impact in our portfolio, but it's just, it's so market dependent on kind of what, what, the, what the laws are, you know, how they, how they've been outlined, how they're upheld and just the dynamics of it. But so you, you've, you've switched from 
you know, from you've sort of sold out of multifamily, gone into into self storage at this point, and and I want to go there and I want to talk more about you know some of the compares and contrasts between them. But before we do that, just going back to your point about starting at the beginning with the the under, understanding of the market, right, and the market survey and, and demand and supply and and how and how you do that. It sounds it sounds like your general strategy is understand the market and then be able to come in and buy below replacement cost. And even after you're doing your improvements, just remain below that replacement cost. Because if you're able to do that, then effectively you can charge rents that, that are lower than a competition and, and be able to maintain your margins. Is that in general, the strategy? Yeah, and that is. And then we cap it also based on the fact that we have our own design build company. And so we can build more cost effectively than our competition can. And so we, we pass that on to our investors. We're not, you know, if you just go and hire a GC, if they save money on the job, then mm -hmm. that's money in their pocket, right? Mm -hmm. With us, every dollar goes into the actual project. So when we come in under budget, you know, it's, it's money we've saved the project. If we're coming in over budget, then there's no, there's no fluff markup on our part. It's just exactly what it is. And so that is one of the ways in which we stay competitive more so in the marketplace by having our own design build firm as well. Gotcha. So you go through the design build process at cost for your investments? We have our fee to, um, you know, obviously keep our lights on, but it's market driven. And my point is that if we realize a cost, then we're, we're doing it cost plus. So okay. plus our fees, we're mm -hmm. not, we're not buying the job for a dollar amount, which is what most GCs will do. They'll buy it. And then what the GC's goal is, is to pull money out of that job to keep it in their pocket. Gotcha. Yeah. I see so what you're saying. they'll keep, they'll keep the extra, you know, if they save $10,000 on HVAC, they're not going to give that back to the owner. They're just going to, you know, go on a family vacation. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, structuring the, those construction contracts are critical and, and getting the right terms. And as, as you go into the capital stack, uh, I love the point you made. It's not a point that, that's made often. I think it's more of kind of an advanced understanding of, of just risk and, and, and a way to, to look at um, a different way to evaluate the terms of the deal. So, so say that again, what, what you said, and, and explain, explain that a little more, because I think it's a really good point. Well, we, there's two points to this that we normally get with investors. They'll say, you know, I totally understand apartments, but I don't get self-storage. And you know, my response to that is, well, apartments are, I mean, self-storage is apartments without toilets. It's without sinks. It's like the most basic form of an apartment. It's a box, right? Mm -hmm. Anything beyond that box is just a more complex apartment. And so the, the, the two models are very similar. So if we're comparing um, a split, a capital stack split between the two, it, let's say if, if we're offering 30%, I'm, I'm just going to make it an extreme. If we're offering 30% of the capital split to our investors, so for every dollar we make, they get 30 cents and we get 70 cents, compared to an apartment dealer where the, the apartment um, developer is giving their investors 80% and they're only keeping 20%, and, but their rate of return is, let's say, 8% and ours is 10%. That means that they have to give away so much of the deal in order to get that rate of return up to 8%, while we only have to give away 30% to give away 10%. So inherently, our deal has less risk because of the fact that we can keep more for ourselves 
and still offer a more competitive rate of return for the investor comparatively to a multifamily deal or another deal. Doesn't, it doesn't really matter. So if I'm comparing the two, and these are all fictitious percentages that I'm coming up with right now, just as an example, if I'm looking at that, if I'm going to get that 8% in multifamily and I got to give away 80% of it, that means I got to work really hard just to get that, realize that 8% versus if I can give away only 30% and realize a 10% yield. Right. Is that, does that clarify it? Yeah, it does. It does. And, and so essentially like what I, what I want to, I think the nuanced way of looking at it is because, you know, when, when I talk with investors, I'll, I'll hear, and we keep it pretty cut and dry. We're, we're kind of a 70, 30, uh, throughout all of our deals. But, but when I talk with investors, you know, I will hear, hear things like, oh, it's, oh, I was looking at a deal and it was, you know, maybe it was a 60, 40 split, um, you know, 40% to the GPs and 60 to the LPs. And they say, oh, that, that's too much. The, the GPs are getting too much of the deal. And, and I think the nuanced way to look at it is, as you said, well, I, you can actually look at it if they're still able to get you the returns that they're promising and, and take more of the deal. That essentially means like you're saying that deal actually can be perceived as less risky because they're not having to give up as much to still give you the same amount of return. And I think that that's the point that I want to get across as just another way to, to look at these things is, you know, sometimes folks get too caught up, I think, on, on the splits um, and, and on, on different fees and all this. And, and at the end of the day, like even when, when I was investing more passively, it was I didn't care so much how much the, the GP was making and, and, and at the fees and things were, as long as what I was seeing at the end of the day was net of all that. And as long as, as it was likely that it would be realized. Right. And so I just think it's, it's a different perspective to focus on the returns you're getting kind of versus um, some of, some of those other deal structures and, and actually having a, a more favorable split to the GP is because there's more room in the deal and therefore it could be considered actually a safer deal. So I think it's just a different way to look at it. I wanted to really call out for folks. Yeah, and the other side of it is too, is <clears throat> you brought up two other points because there's preferred returns and then there's also management fees or fees that get tacked on like acquisition fees, disposition fees, annual maintenance fee, whatever those things are, right? Mm -hmm. And the way I look at it is you have to, you can't take one in isolation compared to the rest. You have to look at it entirely. Every developer, Every sponsor of the deal has to cover their overhead, has to keep the lights on, and should be compensated for their work because they're bringing value to the table. So is that in proportion to the deal? Is it in proportion to the marketplace? And, or is it, are those things becoming a top heavy burden that then is impacting the rate of return? And so when, when we discuss that with investors, we, we ask them to look at all those things, not just you know taking, as you said, well, the split's better. Okay, but what's the, what's the yield to you, as you said? You know, well, are your fees? You're, you're taking a whole bunch of fees. Okay, but how long am I working on this comparatively to what's going on? And is that a rational, a reasonable amount? Um, those are the things that we always evaluate because we, we get presented with deals all the time. And we're, we're asked to assess other deals and we're asked to come in and partner with people on deals. And so we're looking at everyone's different structure and every, there's no two that are exactly the same. And so it's a matter of understanding each of these things to, to find out what is appropriate for that deal and does it make sense? Um, so, you know, those are, those are the different ways in which we analyze risk as well as how we analyze what the 
proper compensation for the work that is being done. Does that make sense? That does. And I appreciate you expanding on that. And then, so what's the third, was was there a third one that we didn't hit on yet on, in your practical guide? Well, that the, the, uh, the first two were um, knowing your market. The second one was buying below replacement costs. And the third one is understanding the capital stack. And gotcha. so that's where we also look at other investment strategies that can enhance the rate of return, whether it be opportunity zones, historic tax credits, um, we've done pace financing, and we've done obviously cost segregation. So those are four different strategies that we have layered in um, to the deals in order to enhance the rate of return or the capital stack for our investors. Gotcha. Gotcha. Awesome. And so you mentioned the the transition out of, out of multifamily and, and into self-storage in, in 2018. Uh, you talked about some of the the market dynamics and, and reasoning behind why you did that, but I'm curious if you could kind of compare and contrast a little bit for us uh, the, the two investment types, and then and then talk then talk a little bit more about self storage and, and why you see that as such a uh, I guess your investment of choice going into the future. Well, I, I appreciated what my I've had two major mentors in my life, and the first one was you know the, my professor who I worked for. And he, he really liked the, the Henry Ford model of business. You know, his, the clients could have any color car that they wanted as long as it was black. And, you know, being the, the architect that um, training that I am, you know, if, if people don't like your design, it, it brings a, about a, a certain level of critique or offense because it's like, you know, it's personal, right? That you're, you, you put out this creativity and, you know, someone rejects it. So, when you have apartments, when you have condominiums, when you have buyers that are picking things, I don't like the kitchen. I don't like the cabinets. I don't like the color of the paint. I don't like the carpeting. I don't like the tile work. I don't like the layout. I need more of this or that. There's just so many different things that people can nitpick about within multifamily um, compared to within self-storage is you can have any color box you want as long as it's white. You know, so the only real question that we have for our customers is, how big and where would you like it? You know, it's so it's a lot less decisions. And so people are, when they're comparing our product to others, they're looking at, is it safe? Is it dry? Is it secure? How easy is it for me to get into? And what is the pricing? So the decision factor is a lot less complicated and much more simplistic. And that's one of the beauty things that I really like compared to self-storage compared to multifamily is that it is a it's a lot more basic business model and it's a lot more predictable based upon those factors. I don't have to worry about having to change out the cabinets in five years or new appliances. And, you know, do people like black or white or stainless steel, or, you know, now people are coming out with the 1970s almonds or lime green and stuff like that. So, you know, it's just, to me, it's just a lot more basic of a business model, which then adds a whole heck of a lot more predictability into our business plan. Gotcha. What, what's a operating expense ratio look like in, in self-storage, you know, in multifamily, we would say, okay, 50% is, is kind of a standard. What's self-storage look like? Anywhere from 25 to 35%. Gotcha. Yeah, so the cool. other, the other big comparison is like when we were doing 400 units, that was a hundred million dollars in revenue. I mean, it's, it's, it's a big, hefty, big, hefty loan. I mean, we're, we're doing 850, 900 units. And our cost basis is below 10 million. So, I mean, it's like a fraction of the cost. It's a fraction of per door. And our operational expenses are far less percentage wise. I mean, our biggest expense is either if we have people on site, 
in real estate taxes. Um, the rest of it is, you know, very min minimal comparatively to multifamily. So per deal, we're putting in less risk um, significantly, and we're able to create just as much yield. Our cap rates are very similar to multifamily, but our cost basis and our exposure is a lot less. And so that's, that's another aspect that I really like about it. Gotcha. Gotcha. And uh, you're, up, you're located in Chicago. I, I know from living in Chicago for, for a number of years that, that space is a premium. And, and so clearly there, there's a self-storage play just because, just because of that, right? And you're living in a tiny little apartment, you need somewhere to put all your stuff. I remember having it crammed all, all over my closets and everywhere else. So uh, I'm curious if you have perspective on you know, self-storage in the urban environment versus self-storage in, in more of a suburban or, or rural environment. Uh, I don't know if that's a perspective you have, but I'm just curious of, of how the dynamics differ. Well, first of all, I got to find out who built your apartment buildings because we got to build more self-storage next to that guy <laughs> or that person. <laughs> my, my second mentor has a friend in North Carolina who intentionally builds multifamily with two small closets, and then he puts a self-storage facility right next door. So <laughs> <It's not bad. laughs> um, we do, we do look at all three classes. And so um, we classify them as A, B, and C. Now in, in other forms of real estate, that would be like A is the best neighborhood, B is the next best, and C is not so good neighborhood. And D, like you don't want to buy in that neighborhood. That's not the case in self-storage. They, they classify more of size, location, and product type. So class C would be more rural, like what you were referring to. And uh, first generation, not climate controlled, smaller, maybe 100 to three, 200, 300 units max. And we classify that as like a, uh, a penny stock. So you're going to get a, a nice little coupon off of it. Um, you might see a little bit of appreciation, but basically you're, you're clipping a coupon for that type of product. Um, class B would be more of a suburban product, you know, anywhere from like 200 to 400 units, maybe climate controlled, might have, you know, paved roads and a fence around it with security cameras. And that we, we classify as like a blue chip stock. So you're going to get, you know, a good yield on it. It's just a good, healthy rate of return off that investment. And then a class A would be more urban. So 500 and up units and all climate controlled and, and typically state of the art where you're driving into the building. In each of our facilities, except for our main location, you're literally driving into our building to unload. So in the heart of winter or in the spring when it's raining or in the summer in the heat, you're driving into an air conditioned building where you can unload, the door comes down and you don't have to worry about your stuff having legs and wandering off while you're putting your stuff, your stuff in the locker. So those we consider like a growth stock. You're going to see big appreciation and also a yield, a rate of return on their investment. So that's why we consider them like a growth stock. I gotcha. And as far as, as, as you've seen uh, supply and demand dynamics play out in the market, I mean, where, where are the largest demand? Where's the demand sitting right now in A, a B, and C? Well, if you say in the marketplace as a whole, the, the, the coasts, the East Coast, Florida, Texas, uh, the West Coast are heavily saturated. Typically, you'd see um, in a market demographic reports where supply would equal demand is around seven square feet of lockers per capita. Um, in those areas, we're seeing people building where it's like 11. And so it's like, you know, just off the charts in terms of put, bringing more and more product into those marketplaces. And so we're, we're not... Um, we're not investing in those. So we're, we've been asked to like build in those, 
but our investment is predominantly what we call the flyover states in the you know the Midwest. So we're predominantly you know Wisconsin, Illinois, Ohio, Kentucky. That's you know our market, Iowa, Missouri. Um, that's where we're focusing the bulk of our effort on and our underwriting. But we're probably underwriting ten to twenty deals a week in terms of what we're how we're assessing and plus running our existing facilities as, at the same time. I gotcha. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. It, it's the same thing, like from my company's standpoint in multifamily, we focus uh, on the Midwest. I mean, kind of for, for that same reason, but, uh, but it's just interesting. So the, so the risk then, I mean, it sounds similar. The risk you're seeing is oversupply and therefore one of your main drivers is going into markets where that supply demand differential is favorable on, on the demand side. And that's kind of your, your initial, one of the initial indicators to enter into a market. Absolutely. So for instance, our Chicago one, when we acquired the building, we were around two, two square feet of lockers per capita. And we had half a million people within three miles and 66% of them were renters. And we knew the medium, we know the medium income, we know all this demographic study about it. And so that we can predict the model of how long it should take us to lease up. And in the heart of COVID in 15 months, we're over 50% occupied. You know, the typical absorption rate between multifamily and self-storage, if you're doing ground up or converting, is 3% per month. So historically, it should take you three years to lease up either a self-storage facility or a multifamily building. But with, the, with that much unmet demand, the feasibility consultants that we hired predicted the modeling to be 24 months. Gotcha. And is it, so you mentioned the, the number of renters and obviously be higher in, in a city like Chicago. So is it better to have self-storage in a market with more renters than more homeowners? Not necessarily. Um, <clears throat> I mean, there's two, there's going back to your previous question, there's four real drivers for self-storage. We call them the four Ds. It's divorce, death, disposition, and you know, you're, you're, you're basically stuck. You know, you, you can't move, you got, you're displaced, right? And so the, the biggest thing within those is we look at the medium income. And if predominantly, if the housing stock has the biggest three reasons for not using self-storage, or if I include taxes, I'll, I'll throw in the fourth one, but it's basically basements, garages, and attics. You know, if people have those, they're not going to use a lot of self-storage, but if you're in Texas and you have a big front yard and, or, you know, you can just park whatever you want, or you can put up a, you know, a structure in your backyard and you can put, exactly. So, you know, those are the types of things like, you know, or, or just putting up a barn, right? You, you just put up a metal barn and then you store all your stuff in your backyard if the property's big enough. Yeah. Well, it, it's really practical. I mean, I think that's easy to understand for folks to wrap their heads around, right? It makes a ton of sense. Yeah. I mean, that's what we look for. When we're evaluating a, a market that is predominantly single family, we'll ask the brokers, like, what is, do, are there basements? You yeah. know, are, do, when we look at the aerial view on Google Maps, do you see every single car on their driveway? Mm-hmm which means that they're not using their garages for parking <laughs> right. they're using it for storage. Right. That's a good point. Yeah. So somewhere like Florida where they, where they really don't do basements could be a good spot or a flat roofs and they don't do attics, mm -hmm. you know, so mm -hmm. there's, there's a lot of comparisons there and, and that's what we look for. And when we're evaluating those marketplaces, very, you know, very curious. I know, I know I went kind of deep there with you, but I appreciate getting into the four D's because I, I, I was just curious as we started talking about it. Um, so, you know, Scott, you've had a, a fantastic career, really unique experience. I'd love for you to share with our listeners just what are some of your biggest lessons learned over the past 
30 years of working in real estate? Well, due diligence, you really got to dig into the nuts and bolts. Um, that is important. Um, and some of my most costly mistakes have been because of not enough due diligence. Um, so I think that's, that's the biggest part of it and making sure that you, <clears throat> I was listening to my mentor and he was interviewing, um, a CEO of one of the largest pharmaceutical companies or lab companies in the country. And, you know, the guy went to Harvard and MIT and all, all these great things. And he goes, mm -hmm. look, look, no one's perfect. We're all going to make mistakes. How do we address the mistakes and how do we move on and how do we avoid those mistakes in the future? Do we make mistakes? Absolutely. We're not going to all have the perfect set of information to make decisions, but we have to make the best decision based upon the information that we have. And we just have to make sure that we get the best information that we can in order to make the most educated decision. And that's what, for me, what it comes down to is we're going to assess risk and we're going to assess, you know, the upside. And there's two things that my mentor also, my second mentor also talked to me about was you were, you were mentioning about the investors comparing like how much someone else is getting from the deal. Well, he said, just look at it best case, worst case and what most likely will happen. Mm -hmm. And if you can live with worst case, then go forward with it but never go back and question what the other side made. If you were happy with what you were supposed to make going into the deal, then don't second guess what the other side made. And you know, that that's, there's a life lesson there. You, you know, we, my first investment, my investors got a 90% rate of return on their investment on a single family home. And they said, do it again and don't tell anyone. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> I mean, that's pretty incredible possible standard to meet is a 90% rate of return. Yeah, you, know, you set the we, bar pretty high first right out the gate. It was too high, but it also told me I got to tell everybody because of the fact that if they're wanting to keep me in this little box, that means I'm doing something well. And right. I, and I, and I need to expand my investor pool as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, that I appreciate those points because I mean, you, you're talking about obviously needing to do your due diligence and, and check all the boxes. But at the same time, the, the lessons from your mentors were, you know, at a certain point, you're never going to have perfect information. At a certain point, you got to take the leap, right? Mm -hmm. You got to, you got to move forward. And I, I see so many people get stuck in kind of this analysis paralysis time. And there's always some reason why it's not the right deal, or, or, or there's always something to hold them back. And and you're right. We never have perfect information, but but at a certain point, the reason those people were so successful is, well, they made a decision and they went for it, and and, and right or wrong, they adjusted and they kept going. Absolutely. I mean, you, my background was a history major, so call me a nerd. I, I will not be offended, <laughs> but I like the History Channel, and some of the shows I enjoy the most are like the Men Who Made America Great. You know, they faced incredible amount of risk. Um, and, we're, and we're talking about or the, the foods that made America great. And, you're, and it's not so much to me about the food, but it's understanding what these men saw within the marketplace that caused them to say, there's an inefficiency there. There's an opportunity there. There's something I'm going to take advantage of and, you know, develop this. And, you know, they look at some, some of the great like Hershey's or Reese's or Wrigley, you know, and especially here in Chicago. I mean, those were big Chicago companies, right? Or you look at Rockefeller, Vanderbilt, um, Carnegie Mellon, all these guys, Ford. And the competition that they were going in was how to be better than those guys and how they were you know, spurring one another on, even though they weren't even in similar products. But the whole reason why Rockefeller um, you know, went 
he was trying to cut Vanderbilt out of the cost basis. And that's why he developed pipelines because he, he didn't want to pay Vanderbilt more money to be shipping his oil across the country. You know, it's just like that little spite that was, you know, under his claw to, to drive Vanderbilt, you know, differently. Yeah. Interesting. No, it's, it's fascinating. We learned so much from, uh, you know, looking at what the folks ahead of us have done. So I appreciate that perspective. So Scott, before I let you go, I want to take you through our keys to success round. There's four questions I want to ask you. The first one is put yourself in your shoes of one of your investors. If they could only ask you as a sponsor, one question, what should that one question be? Tell me about who you are. You know, all the, all the figures, all the nuts and bolts of the deal should be outlined in what they're, what they're offering. And I was talking with um, the gentleman who owns a family office and a good friend. And I asked him to evaluate what we were doing. You know, can he punch holes in our deal? I asked him just, you know, I, I said, I'm not coming to you to ask you as an investor. I said, see what I'm doing punch holes. Tell me what, if, you know, you know, where am I leaking? If you will. And he said, looks good. I said, there, there's nothing that he goes, no, I, I never really look at the numbers. I said, the numbers are there are are, they are what they are. He said, I said, then how do you base your, your investments? How do you, how do you, you know, how do you move forward? He goes, if I like the guy, you know, and that was the main criteria He's like, you know, I, I invested in this company that was doing above grade pools in retail shopping malls and teaching swimming because I liked the kid. And we got a good return on it. It turned, it worked out okay, but I liked the guy. So, I mean, I think that there's a big part of that because you, every, every offering should have the rate of return, should have the risk, should have those things. And, and you can assess those, you can determine those on your own. But if you have one question for the sponsors, you know, how much do you appreciate him? How much do you like him? How much are his goals in alignment or his, her goals in alignment with yours? Um, you know, those are the types of things that I think are important. So just getting to know who you're working with is very important. Yeah, I, I think that's a fantastic answer. And like I've said many times, you know, a, a good sponsor can save a bad deal and a bad sponsor can kill a good deal. So it, it really does start with who the sponsor is. Uh, you're exactly right. So Scott, what are you most proud of in your career? Uh, perseverance. Um, you know, it's been through four recessions. I mean, I, the last one technically wasn't even a recession. We had one bad month and a quarter as opposed to two consecutive down quarters. Um, but, you know, some of the hardest times that, you know, between oil prices in the 90s and then <clears throat> the internet bubble crash, the uh, obviously the banking crash, um, and then 9-11 and then, um, you know, the pandemic. And then the big financial crisis. I mean, the fact that we've been able to persevere through all of those situations and adapt and uh, move forward. Um, that's what I'm most proud of. Yeah, that, that, that's awesome. It shows there, there's something there. There's some staying power for sure. And what's a book that everybody should read? One that I think has changed our business a lot is The Road Back to You. It's by Ian Morgan Crone. So K-R-O-H-N no uh, relationship. So I'm not getting any royalties or kickbacks <laughs> off of this, I assure you. Um, but it's about understanding personality types. And um, it breaks everyone's personality down into nine. Um, these fourth century monks came up with this stuff. It just blows my mind away about how um, applicable it still is today. And 
Um, it's helped me understand and relate to people so that, uh, and as well as myself, more importantly, myself and how I respond. And so I think it's been an incredibly helpful tool within our business, as well as outside of our business, because of how I can, um, you know, we can be more effective in our communication and understanding one another. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so much of it is about communication, right? And just uh, communicating in the right way. I mean, uh, so many problems in life come down to, to poor communication. So that, that's awesome. We'll make sure that's listed in the show notes so people can check out that book. And lastly, Scott, what is your number one key to success? <clears throat> my key to success is, um, you know, my, my daughter's soccer team, they have a, uh, an expression, LTG, love the grind. Um, and it, it ties back to the perseverance, but, um, work hard. You know, I, I'm not afraid of working hard. I think, um, you know, I, I believe that you do need to pull back and, re, and rest and re, and relax, um, and be silent and quiet to re, allow your mind and body to rejuvenate. But I think it's important that when you dig into something to maintain that focus and work it out. And I think a lot of times when we experience procrastination, or, you know, not, not getting something done, it's because it's a mental block hurdle, that there's a fear of trying to overcome this thing. There's a fear of like, I won't know it. But every time that I've experienced it, and I just pushed through and knocked it out, I'm like, Oh, that wasn't so bad. You know, but you know, you have to get to that point of being willing to do it. And so there is a bit of a little bit of loving the grind, you know, putting your nose down and working hard and getting it done. And then when the task is done, go and go enjoy life, you know, um, you know, I, I had the opportunity of doing a program with Jesse Itzler, and I don't know if you know, are familiar with him, um, but he wrote a book called uh, 30 Days, uh, Living 30 Days with a Seal. And, you know, he breaks his life into certain hours. And he's like, three hours of my life every day are mine. I will work X amount of hours. I will sleep X amount of hours. And I will have my family time for X amount of hours, but I need three hours for me. Okay, so if you work really hard eight hours, then why is it so bad to give yourself three hours or if you work 10 hours, whatever it may be. Right. And so um, during those times I'm, I'm focused on, you know, I'm driven to get what I need to get done. No, that, that that's awesome. And, and I totally understand that idea of those mental blocks. It's like, for whatever reason, there, there are certain times where there's things that, that I just cannot get off my to-do list. And, and when you, when you think about it, it just, it does come down to like, man, it's just like a mental block to me wanting to get this done. And I think you're right. It does go back to kind of the, if it's something new, if it's an unknown thing and, and in the same way, I've kind of looked at those as like, those are the things you really need to attack and, and push through. Cause you always do realize on the other side, like, hey, it wasn't that bad. You know, yeah. it's just, you just got to get through it. So yeah, I hear you loud and clear. Well, Scott, if folks want to uh, like what you're saying, they want to learn more about what you're doing with your company, how can they get a hold of you? Well, Kent, first of all, thanks for having us on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, and second, if they do reach out to us and they mention the show, um, we will send them a feasibility report, the, one, the same report that we buy um, um, about one of our past historic projects so they could see why we went into that marketplace. And so we, we and it teaches them about self-storage, not just about that location, but about the market as a whole. It's like 175 pages. So if you're having a hard time sleeping at night, you can always pull this out and, you know, it should do the trick. But in all honesty, it's a, it's a great educational tool to understand why the market and how they come up with this stuff. So if they reference the show, we will give them that feasibility report for free. Um, but the uh, way they can get hold of us is at info at coda, C-O-D-A-M-G for managementgroup.com. 
Our webpage is codamg.com, but uh, info.codamg.com. And if they want to see our facilities, it's onestopselfstorage.com. That's one stops spelled out, selfstorage.com. Awesome. And as always, that will all be in the show notes, folks. So just scroll down and click those links to, to check out Scott and his company. And Scott, thank you once again for coming on and adding some great value to our listeners today. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Ritter on Real Estate. Hit the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss out on the content that will make you a better investor. Also, visit KentRitter.com for articles, videos, and tools curated just for passive investors. Until next time, this is Kent Ritter with Ritter on Real Estate. Now go out and invest like a pro.